Hello, folks. This is the Impunity Observer Podcast. I'm the Managing Editor, Fergus Hodgson, and I've got our Deputy Editor, Mauro Echeverria, in Ecuador. I'm actually recording this in Guatemala, our home base for the organization. We are a geopolitical research-oriented organization. We provide uh, intelligence to those who want to learn about the nexus between Latin America and Anglo-America. And one of our investigators, researchers, Mauro, he recently traveled to Cuba, and this is an exciting prospect for him as a, as a rising researcher, journalist, writer, to go and see firsthand what's going on on the island. So I don't want to take too much of the spotlight here. I want to get straight on to Moro. So Moro, why don't you tell us how you prepared? Because there was a strange way you were concerned about being, let's say, derailed before even getting there. So why don't you tell us about the preparation you made even just get to Cuba without getting tripped up. Right. Hi, Fergus. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. It was kind of tricky, the entire preparation, because I had to get a visa to enter Cuba. So I already had to have some contact with Cuban authorities even before I got to Cuba. So basically what I did was started like securing all my profiles in every social network I have. Uh, just making them private or making sure that no one else besides my friends and my regular followers can check the information I place, I put, and I post in, in social media. Then it was very difficult, the situation over there, because there's always police near you, uh, especially near monuments and stuff like this, which are very touristic places. So in places like that, it's very difficult to make questions, to talk about uh, the Cuban dictatorship, to talk about politics, and everyone seems to be afraid of that. So that's my entire preparation was basically getting off the radar and becoming as quiet as possible, like making having a low profile before I get into Cuba. Yeah, and just to clarify for listeners, thanks for tuning in. And our website is impunityobserver.com. And the article by Mauro is why the Cuban, Cuban dictatorship is weaker than ever. And one thing, I mean, obviously I'm managing editor, so I had some role in this, but one aspect of this trip that I liked is that we didn't set the content or angle before you went. We basically went on an exploration and just see what you find and what the story is. So was it, was it easy to find an angle to a story to share did you take a few days to think, what what is the real story here? Or was it just in your face right away? I think it was in my face right away. It's, even since I got to the airport, it was almost clear to me, like, people are getting tired of this. And everyone seemed to be, like, exhausted of the situation, the day-to-day -day basis. People tend to be already tired of this. So when I talk to people, I usually talk to people everywhere. I talk to people on the plane. I talk to people on the airport. I talk to taxi drivers. I talk to bus drivers, people on the bus. And the first day I got there, I remember I had like, I remember thinking, oh my God, like everyone's tired. And I've never seen in any other country that whenever you talk to someone, like everyone's depressed, everyone's tired of the situation. So that shocked me. That shocked me. And it, it's something I've never seen before. So that's when I got like, no, we have to do this. We have to see why people are getting tired of this. What are the main reasons? It's so strange because years ago, 
I traveled to Venezuela and I was in the airport in Miami and getting on, I guess, some kind of national airline, which was the only one that was going pretty much or had a deal for me. And the plane was delayed by maybe an hour or two, but by the, the gate, it had on time. And I went up and I went up and chatted with the lady. I said, it, it's delayed. What's what's going on? She's just looked at me. Oh, and my Venezuelan friends. Oh, well, you got a bit of patria. A bit of Venezuela was already in Miami. And you just people are just uh, whatever. Everything is just screwed up here. <laughs> right. It, it's something similar in Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you can't take things at face value. So you went there just a couple of weeks ago. So this is fresh. And uh, do you want to tell us also about, you said you, you were trying to just talk with people. How did you record them? Did you take audio recordings of them all? I asked, asked them for, I asked for their permission. And most of them were like, no, don't even like record my voice. Don't film me. Don't get videotape of me. Just like take notes. People are still really afraid. And you know what's interesting is that when I visited some of the poorest neighborhoods in Cuba, in, Daban, in Havana, there's one called uh, Jesus Maria, another one called October 10th, Tubre 10. And what I saw on those two neighborhoods is that people were, were not that afraid. We're like, I hate this dictatorship. I hate the situation we're in. So I'm going to talk about it. I'm, I'm just going to say it. But of course, they told me not to record them, but they just spoke out loud. And this is something that didn't happen in other parts of the city. If you went to the richer parts, they were like, just be quiet with just almost mumbling. They had more to lose. Exactly. So, and, and they still talk to me about the situation. I even talked to police officers who are supposed to defend the revolution. Wow. They told me, like, we are tired of this. My cousin went or my relative went to the United States and he's making so much money and his and the police officer was making like twenty, thirty dollars a month. So it's a very like people are getting to notice because there's an, an important factor which is the the internet. Internet was available recently in the island, so that is why people are now beginning to see uh, the reality and the reality not not only of Cuba, but of other countries. For example, they see there's free education in every country. There's public education. Pretty much, yeah. So they, they say like, why are they telling me we have free education if every other country has free education? Sure. Exactly. So they're beginning to compare Cuba to other countries, which makes them realize how difficult the situation is in Cuba. And let's let's drill down a little bit into what you mean by the situation. So on the one hand, Cubans live on painfully low salaries, like you said, $20, $30, maybe $50 per month, almost nothing. On the other hand, they have this very primitive ration of supplies. So clarify, the two sides, what income they can get, and then what are they kind of given from the regime to live like paupers, but to at least survive until for another day? Sure. Uh, the aspect, they have these ration cards uh, in which the regime, like, takes, uh, like, the regime verifies how much food they're getting to every family. So 
there's these ration cards, which the prices are really low, to be honest, because they're subsidized by, by the state. However, there's a limit. For example, I remember in the top of my oh, head. So with, the, with the ration card, you can buy things. You don't get given them. You can buy things in, the sto in these stores. Exactly. You get to buy, but just up to a certain amount of, let's say, oil, let's say, eggs, everything. Yeah, cooking oil. Yeah. So for, for instance, a person gets up to five eggs per month. And they're only able to buy that in a family. Up to five eggs, um, and and there's also. I would eat that in one day, just FYI. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> it was like astonishing for me when I heard like five eggs. What do you do? For instance, I asked. I remember I asked a mom of two kids in 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 a hotel, and I was like, "Wait, so what do you do the rest of the month? Because five eggs last you five days <laughs> or something like that. Days, if you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're careful about it, but she was like, I have to do magic. Like they have to make food from like, let's say the banana peels. They have to make food off of that. Oh man. Yeah. And I heard like the phrase which stuck in my head is still in my head until now, which is uh, Cubans are like magicians because they have to make, they have to create solutions for the problems they have because there's, they don't have any alternative. So that's insane. And so basically they, they get these ration cards for, for the food, but also everything is scarce, not only food. Food is just like on the top of my mind, but there's also cement for buildings is really scarce. Also uh, car parts, when you want to repair your car, there are no parts. So Cubans have to be, like, I mean, taxi drivers have to be creative about that. I remember going into a cab that I had to pull a string to open the door. So that, that's how they tend to fix everything because there's no other alternative. It's that or do not getting, I mean, not using your car for, let's say, cab they rides. Just, they, 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 improv they improvise. Exactly. They have to improvise. And also the situation which I was describing also involves really scarce in, in scarcity in the in terms of medicine uh, they claim to i mean the the myth of the cuban regime is they have best healthcare system or public healthcare system in the world or something like that and that's totally false uh, i talked to people outside the hospitals patients and they were like i have to bring my own mosquito net if i get dengue uh, i have to bring every supply almost every supply by myself and to in order to do this they have to go to the black market which means larger higher prices yeah higher prices and also like you can get up to five years of jail for doing that yeah but my sense is the black market is is even if it's technically illegal is largely tolerated is that the case yeah, it, it, it is illegal, but it, I mean, everyone goes to the black market if they want to sell something, if they want to buy something, but prices are high. Okay, your, your video froze there. So do you want to, okay, we're back. You're back. Good to go. Okay. So in Moto, why, let's, let's flip it a little bit. One of my old Cuban friends back in Houston said that todos son presos, the Cubans, they're all prisoners. So we can see the economic situation is a disaster. 
And this has been heightened by, let's say, the COVID-19 era and maybe I lose track of all these these storms, these weather implications. But why don't we flip then? So what did people actually say about their engagement with government? Is it just there's some sort of government that's far away from them that they don't know much about? What What is their engagement? Their engagement with the government is the government's lying to us. The government is always telling us lies and we cannot take it anymore. They always say the same lies. We have all the time same problems or very similar problems and there are no solutions. I remember when I, I went to Cuba the week before that, the hurricane passed by and they people are still with no electricity and they were and on the government media you can see like pictures of the Ascanelli regions like Pinar del Rio which was very affected by by the hurricane and just like supposedly talking to the people and making solutions or having solutions ready for the people over there but the reality is that there's no solution until now and it's and it's been more than a month and people are having blackouts outside of Havana. They have blackouts every day for eight hours. Then they have two hours of electricity and then eight other hours without electricity. In Havana, the situation's a bit better. And even people inside Havana, they recognize it. They, they acknowledge that they, their situation is much better uh, than those of the people who live in other provinces. So, for instance, they were telling me in Havana, um, I know I'm very lucky because I only get blackouts four days a week for five to seven hours each day. But in, in other provinces, they're having blackouts for 16, 17 hours every day. So they, they acknowledge how the government is not telling them the truth and the reality of the of the problems and the other different situations that's that are going on on the island. I see. And but when you say the regime is or the dictatorship is weaker than ever, weaker how? Does that mean there's actually some sort of liberalization on the horizon? Do you get any sense that some some change is actually going to occur? Yeah, I I truly believe that changes are coming. Let's hope soon sooner than later but how we can see this is because of the public demonstrations i remember like two years ago i almost never heard of a public demonstration against the regime now it's almost weekly or some some weeks every day so you can see how people are losing their fear towards uh, the dictatorship and they're starting to go out to the streets and demonstrate they're they're not happy with everything that's going on on the island you can in Havana the weekend before I got to the to the island I remember there were some protests right around the corner where I was staying so I was a, a bit concerned but when I got there there were no more protests and I asked what happened with those protests and people in in the in the neighborhood were telling me they the police dressed as, as civilians i mean like undercover agents beat up 15 and 16 year old kids i mean they really hit their faces there so everyone now is afraid of go to a public demonstration they're like but they're still brave enough in some areas to go out so it's kind of difficult but 
you can see that more and more people are going out, out to the streets and complain about the government. Yeah. So right now, people are still afraid that there are these agents provocateur or these infiltrators in the protests who are going to not only create a bad image, but actually start attacking within the protests, attacking the people there. Now, in terms of being a game changer, though, we know that back in the 1990s, after the Soviet Union came apart, Cuba had a, an extremely difficult economic situation, being so dependent on the Soviet Union. So now we, we have a return to that with also economic depravity. But at the same time, do you think it is, let's say, the, the, the undermining of the monopoly of our information? Because, of course, it, for, the, for decades, the Granma, the Communist Party newspaper, and the couple of channels they would let through on TV, that was basically the information. That was this fake world they created. So how much is the internet changing minds? You mentioned, you touched on that briefly. Is that the game changer? Is that, is that really what is making a new, at least some liberalization inevitable? Yeah, I believe that internet is going to be like the most important aspect for Cubans right now and for in the future because Cubans not only see different or read different stuff on the internet although there are some pages some pages uh, against the government for instance cubanet or diario de cuba with which are independent news outlets is is 14 y medio still going i'm not really sure of that one i don't think it is or probably it is you're not aware of it okay but these pages i when i was in the island i i said like oh i i, I want to see these news and I wasn't able to get into those pages. Oh, right. So they're just they're just blocked. Exactly. Cuba. But however, the, the the important thing is that people get to talk to their families in which in some part are in the United States, in other countries in Latin America, in Spain. So they get to see the reality of these other countries and how different the scenarios are in each country. So I believe that internet is huge is colossal and there's with time there's more and more internet accessibility in the island now a couple of years ago you can already get mobile internet into your phone so you can see everything from any part of the island and they're getting these changes which i'm not sure why the government are like fond of making these improvements in terms of internet if it can be like something that will uh, have an impact in 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 the people and in the how they see the government yeah it, in some ways it's it's a little bit similar to what's happening in iran where there's a changing of the guard there although i hope so with people being so aware of the way foreign life is okay now You've written one article about the regime being weaker and about your firsthand experience. What did you could you not put in? Because obviously we kept you down to about 2,000 words. What was, let's say, next on the list that you would have loved to have shared but didn't necessarily fit the article? What I really liked was talking to former political prisoners and people who were really in jail for just talking or trying to leave the island and how the situation uh, how they lived 
in prison for let's say five years, eight years, whatever they they were on in prison and how they were treated. Also, how important is tourism for the Cuban state, the Cuban government, and, and the communist dictatorship? Uh, a fun fact that I also didn't include was that Miramar, which is one of the richest zones in Havana and probably the country, is home to the Communist Party headquarters. So, so you can see the contrast. While, while they claim to uh, fight for the people and the poor people and the working class, they have their headquarters in the richest part of the city. I want to use strong. I want to use stronger language about this motto, of course. But one thing that always shocks me and sometimes breaks my heart a little bit is that I'll be traveling in places like I was just in Buenos Aires, and I'll see graffiti. There's, there's these murals on the walls, and so often they'll have this almost reverent picture of Fidel Castro. What can you say? to the many, many Marxists and Fidel, Fidelists, as you might say, or Fidel Castro lovers, but what has come of his grand project? Yeah, it's just the Cuban myth or the communist myth is a failure. They don't have public education, quality public education. They don't have public health care, decent public health care. It's not true. But what, what, yeah, no, I understand, but they would say, well, it's the blockade. The quote blockade. And you mentioned in your article that, in fact, there is no blockade when it comes to food or essentials. It doesn't exist. It's just a, it hasn't existed for 20 years. So it's a huge distraction. But it seems like some people want to believe in the myth because that just more, it's more appealing to them. It's more exciting than the reality. Right. I mean, it, it's unbelievable to talk to a Cuban. And even some Cubans still believe that. Some Cubans on the island, they, they just don't know any better. Yeah, and they, they are living it. So it's crazy how some people are like blind with this story of the blockade when the, the U.S. is the largest commercial partner regarding food with Cuba. So what are you talking to me about any blockade? And there's food scarcity. So what's the situation? It has been a huge distraction. Also, the way that that is blamed on the United States is also very disingenuous because, of course, the the sanctions came in when the Cuban regime just started confiscating, stealing private properties. And they said, you can't just steal people's properties, their investments. So you should blame the thieves and not those who are trying to protect private property. It's very frustrating sometimes when that that debate comes up and it it seems to come unfortunately from people who are just ill-informed or blissfully ignorant what are you going to call them useful idiots but there are many of them unfortunately okay so folks if you haven't read Moto's piece it's at impunityobserver.com and just look up why the cuban dictatorship is weaker than ever and you can also follow Moto's work on twitter Get on our Telegram. Get on. We've got all the social media platforms going with the Impunity Observer, and I'm excited about your next investigations coming up. I mean, you've got you've got one this month. What's the one this month on? Uh, how U.S. money finances the Cuban dictatorship. Okay, really? Holy moly! Okay, so what? What's the? Give us a little tidbit. Give us a, a taster, so we get excited about this one. 
Yeah, basically it's mainly focused on tourism, the importance of U.S. tourism in the island, and also U.S. Uh, people in the U.S., Cubans mainly, who send remittances to their families in the, in the island. So that's the angle we're working on it. Okay, folks, model. Thanks for your time, mate. I'm really glad you made this trip and got home safe. The more I think about this, the more I think I'm almost shocked you made it to me. <laughs> you made it out, okay? <laughs> okay, buddy. Until next time, folks. Thanks for listening. Also, cheers. <laughs> <laughs>